Well, friends, we are joined here today with Justin McRoberts. And um, Justin, you are my second two-time guest on the podcast. So I feel hey. like that's a pretty high honor. I'll, t- I'll take that. That's a very high honor. But um, I mentioned that to be able to say, I think the previous time I had you on is the podcast episode that I feel worst about my contribution to. <laughs> Sorry. And, no, no, no. It had nothing to do with you. It's a hundred percent me. And and um now like that was the first time that we had met and now we know each other a little bit more, so like yes. I feel comfortable sharing this with you. That like I, you know, um was learning how to do that. I feel like I'm still learning how to do this, but one of the things I didn't have the confidence to do was to ask for a copy of your book. And oh. so I, it was the Every single time I've done an interview, I've read the entire book of who I do it with, except for that one with you. Oh, and well, glad we fixed it this time. We fixed it this time. Good. And so, like, I was like, so there's like a um, cactus on your cover. Can you talk about that some, please? I feel like you did just fine. <laughs> like oh, so we get to redeem it here today. Amen and amen. Let's redeem it. Um. So the book that you've got coming out is called Sacred Strides, and uh, we're looking at in a kind of the intersection of creativity and rest. Is that a is that a good yeah? That'd be good to talk about it. Okay. Yeah. So um, another confession: as we get going, as I started, like I was really excited about your book, and as I started getting into it, I had this like little bit of concern that started to get raised because of I have got some baggage around. uh, around like a new Sabbath legalism that I feel like yes. is, exists in some circles. So I want to talk to you 100%. about that at some point. Let's do it. But before we get to that, I wanted to say like, I actually really loved your book. And Thank I think you. one of the things that I loved about it was the starting point of it wasn't about like, oh, Sabbath is the thing that um, fixes everything that we need to all practice in a certain kind of way. But it was, to me, the way that I read it was... Um, belovedness was at the center of the book and the idea of our work and our rest both flow out of belovedness yep yeah could you talk about that a little yeah i'm looking for the 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 actual the way i read it down here in in the book um that that uh my natural posture is not work nor is my natural posture rest my natural posture is belovedness and both work and rest spring from my belovedness and return me to it. It's sort of it's the poem, the sort of the heartbeat of the book. The other way to say it is that the my most natural way to be in the world is to be loved, and I get to practice that. In fact, I, I want to practice that in both my rest posture and in my work posture. It's the the you know it's sort of the the third layer subtext to Jesus saying that the Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath. This is this is a commandment that's that's offered to you and given to you for your betterment as opposed to like get it right. But yeah, it's about being, it's about being loved. And it's so fascinating to me. Like how I'm kind of curious, maybe even first, like how you got to that point or that angle when you are like, did you start with trying to figure out the intersection of work and rest in your life? And that like, as you dug down, you're like, Oh, this is where it flows from. Or did you move towards, a place of like being able to own your belovedness and walk in that. And you're like, Oh, this stuff actually flows out of that. 
Yeah, and and what you know what folks will pick up in the book is there's a bit of a there's a bit of a journey. I mean, it's, you know, this like we we kind of we learn things, we learn things, and then we un and and then we unlearn and relearn and then unlearn and relearn and it's sort of this like globular mess of uh, of learning. And so like I had I had hints of my belovedness earlier in my my faith process mostly in the context of work like what i was used to because of my upbringing was work like that's where your value is and you know we're all sort of tired of the cliche now and i get it that like well you aren't what you produce uh you can say that but practicing that's a very different thing so i yes. still come through the doorway uh into my religious practice that was available to me and that's part of the <laughs> it's part of how grace works right is like where do you need to be met and I I was someone who spent a lot of time on stage in high school doing theater and other things, um, and that was the doorway through which I walked into faith practice. It was a it was about uh, participating. It was about contributing, and I found a very different uh, experience of life and love in the in my faith context in the context of work, like what like like working in the context of faith felt very different. It wasn't as performative. I was contributing to that bigger thing, that whole thing. And as I learned to, the thing, as I practiced work in the context of, of religion, what I started to come in touch with wasn't just like the satisfaction of work, but that there was something else there. Like I was touching something else. And that reframed my actual experience of rest so that when I did get tired and started to take seriously these commandments, these disciplines about rest and Sabbath keeping, I started to experience that same connectedness hmm. that, that it wasn't like work does a certain thing and rest does this other thing. They were both taking me to this, this, this full experience of life. I referenced Parker Palmer a ton in the book and he talks about that hidden wholeness. Um, that's what I was uncovering. Like I would do a work. There's a great chapter. A great, great chapter. It's one of my favorite chapters. It's a fantastic chapter. Everyone needs it. This is. I just read this a couple of days ago. I was like, gosh, I love this story. But it's a story about traveling to Mexico, like really early in in my faith journey, as so many of us did. Uh, I went to Mexico with a group of kids, and I was the song leader. And I was invited to not just lead songs in the morning and evening sessions, and then travel around and work alongside kids, and you know, meet all Doug's friends. Doug was the leader of the thing. But they stayed up, the, the leadership team stayed up all night the whole week they were down there. It was like very like agro Christian thing. And I was like, <laughs> I've stayed up for several days on end playing Halo. So I could probably do it for Jesus. Um, and I super did. I, get, I got down there and worked my tail off and, uh, and prayed through the night most nights. And the kind of exhausted I was, at the, like I was toast. And I was a very different kind of toast. Like I was exhausted, but I was really happy because I knew where my energies had been spent and I knew what I, I knew what I'd contributed to. And I was in touch with myself, with God and with the people around me in a very different way than I had been in the past. Um, which also meant that when I laid down to rest and I was done, that was a very different experience of rest. And the, in both places, I touched that hidden wholeness. I touched that hidden belovedness and I wanted more of that. I didn't need more work. I didn't need more rest. I wanted more of whatever work and rest was getting me to. I I love that. Um, 
as a super tangent, was the trip that you're on, was it in Mexicali with like high school students that would come down and sleep in tents and hundred percent we went, through, yeah, it was, we went yeah. to we, Mex- the heat. Doug had a trip. Uh, Doug stole hand. He's a, he's uh, still a pastor. He's up in, um, uh, Wisconsin now. He would take a trip every year to, uh, with students, but he was in Mexico like five or six times a year developing he did the thing i don't get into it in the book because this is not a book about short-term missions yeah yeah yeah. Uh, but he did it really well because he was actually in relationship with the folks he was working with including the cops or the whole story there um but uh but yeah it was mexicali mexico okay yeah i was wondering uh i used to take students on a trip that was associated with apu uh, with oh, the yeah. Jesus pacific university down there yeah. and it would be students from all over the country that would come down for anyways totally random Uh, I I had wondered if like, oh, is Justin our worship leader that week that we were there? Um, But so like with this, you like you were a traveling musician that was going around and touring. And were you on like the CCM circuit? Were you doing all that back in the day a bit? A a little bit. I was peripheral to that. Like I I was there. Even my label was a little bit kind of on the we were edgy. (laughs) And by edgy means we were less successful. Tooth and nail. Yes, it was. Well, we were at, we were actually less successful than Tooth and Nail, so we were actually edgy. <laughs> and I think that's what we mean by edgy a lot of time. We're edgy. It means it's not going well. Yes, that's what it means. Um, th- uh, I was on a record label called Five Minute Walk, so we were this like okay. semi indie ish label. It would be oh. called indie now, but it's not really actually independent. Got it. All right, so you, you're traveling. You're a um, a touring musician. You plant a church. You're a church planter. Like you're doing this work of ministry. And I mean, I think it's really fascinating the way that like your experience in Mexico taps into this like deep thing in you that I think a lot of us who are engaged in work of ministry have that kind of experience at some point. Yeah. And one of the places that we see that lead for folks is to exhaustion, to burnout, to the work becoming the ultimate thing. And you end up with tons of people like pastors, but also people that are engaged in ministry beyond that, even as um, as non-paid, non-vocational pastors, but just engaged in volunteer work with the church, parachurch, whatever, yep. That and it's tapping into that thing, and then it sort of like moves to this other place where it actually yes. starts damaging your soul. Yep. What, like, how do we distinguish between like, here's this like really beautiful thing that's happening in me to, yep. oh, it shifted into something else? Um, first I would read this book I just wrote. That's going to be helpful. Uh, that's a huge, that would be a big step because, and I actually do mean it because, um, the mistake I made is, I think it's a mistake. I don't want to say mistake. The thing I did, the thing I lacked, I lacked a bit of wisdom, um, when it came to burnout. Um, so I'll start there and then work backwards. So okay. uh, burnout like depression, um, it's not a positive thing per se. But it can be a gift. In other words, it's not ju- it's not just like this is this negative thing that just random shows up in your life. Depression uh, is, I mean, I love the way Jim Carrey says it. Jim Carrey says depression is your is your soul saying, I am tired of playing this character. Um, huh. Like you're being spoken to, like your soul is talking to you. Um, there's more to depression than that. And I'm not belittling it, but part of what it means to get depressed, to be depressed is you have to pay attention to your circumstances, your patterns, like what's actually going on that puts you in that place. So burnout can be a way in which it can be a moment of, uh, of, uh, self 
revelation and and realization. Like, what's actually at hand here? Um, In those moments, you need a guide. You need you need someone to to catch you in that moment and not just help you get better, but help you understand like what is it? What's actually going on here? Um, Because in my fortunate uh, uh, journey, I had folks help me contextualize that this wasn't including Doug in that story. That the thing you're desiring here is a sense of being fully alive. Like so, if this job gets you to a sense of fully aliveness, fantastic. Like, don't become dependent upon the thing, which is that's that's the line I was that we often cross where we go deeper into burnout. We ignore the moment uh, where like our burnout or our sadness points to the limitations of our dependencies. So you love your job. Fantastic. It can grant you certain pathways and grant you certain experiences and unpack certain things in your life. But it's also really limited. And if you depend on that thing, if that's the thing you're chasing is success and execution, then that becomes an idol and it will betray you. But if through the doorway of your job, you come in contact with and 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 fall in love with the, the sacred beloved work of God in the world, that's a whole different thing. So it takes guidance, it takes coaching, it takes reframing those moments. It's interesting. Um, one of the, I, I had so many thoughts about my own experience, both like uh, in the local church and my own experience kind of in, some of my life stuff like right now that I'm walking through. And one of the things I started processing a little bit more when I was reading your book was that um, one of the things that helped me in the way that when I left the church that I'd been at for almost 20 years, and in some ways, like there are all these people that we felt like we had poured into and we realized, oh, these are non-reciprocal relationships. And... Um, and like, that's just one of those things that like, yeah, you should know, but like, I guess we just didn't, we weren't prepared for it in the way that it kind of hit us and affected us realizing that. And even as we tried to process that with some of those folks, the way that they responded to it made it very evident that like, oh, these are non-reciprocal relationships. Anyways, one of the things that I began saying that had helped me to deal with it was I said, oh, well, what happened was at this religious institution, I was a purveyor of religious goods and services. Mm. And then when I was no longer doing that, I was no longer needed. They had a new purveyor of religious goods and services. Yep. And that was actually really helpful for me. It was a helpful thing for me in dealing with like some feelings of abandonment, of loss that of what I had thought were friendships, but were really non-reciprocal relationships. Yep. Um, But I have found every time I have talked about that in a conversation with somebody, they're like saying like, this is a really helpful framework for me to understand this. Yeah. Their response to me is like, oh gosh, that's really sad. Um, yeah, it, it's, and it's not not sad. It's also not everything, right? Yeah, talk, talk me through that a little bit. Give me like, you know, a free like three minute coaching session here. Sure. Well, cause you're not <laughs> wrong. I mean, like the, the way, we'll talk specifically about the pastorate, but it's, uh, but this is, this is true of a lot of life uh, and a lot of our work relationships in general is the relationship is predicated on usefulness. It's predicated on utility. One of the one of the things I go after in the book is I as I talk about utility a lot. That's what got me thinking about this. Is and a lot of our relationships 
are predicated on, on, on utility. What can you bring to the table? It's the doorway. I'm probably exaggerating. No, I'm not exaggerating. I'm probably like wrong statistically about this. But I'm going to say that the, the majority of relationships we're in are predicated on what one person or the other person can bring to the table, which makes it really important, first and foremost, to recognize that. That's actually what's going on. Um, and it's not bad. There's more to the relationship than that. But if the utility part isn't there, the relationship's going to go away. Um, that's just real. That's why folks show up. And it's and it. And I'll stay here for a second and say this. I totally get it. Uh, and you and I've talked about this. I totally get it that folks have been in church settings, religious settings, and felt used by church leadership. I totally understand that. And I won't. I'm not pushing back on that on the whole. I will say though. The, the most used people I know are pastors. You've been getting used, especially if you think you're developing actually uh, developing all these actual relationships. No, folks actually came because you have something to offer them. And if you can't offer that to, men, to them anymore, you're not going to have that relationship. It's such a rare moment in which like a pastor hits a wall, trips up, and like the same community they're serving rallies around the, the lead them back to health. That's super rare. So it's, it is a, it is an unfortunate, I think, but, uh, but also like pretty fundamental reality of, of our social sphere. That said, all the more reason to have altitude on that job and not over identify with it. Yeah. Um, because, well, and that's what Sabbath keeping can do is if I can pull 52 days of the year off the calendar and not be the, these people's pastor for a day, but simply practice being loved and cared for by the God who actually holds all things together. If I have the altitude on that and I recognize who I am and my belovedness, it helps <laughs> as I'm disappointed and as I'm injured. As, I, like, as these things go away, I'm, I'm not so rooted in my identity as a worker bee uh, that when these things disappoint me, I'm I'm dragged down into the doldrums as deeply. It still sucks. It still hurts. It's still a, a part, a, a way the machine works that I wish it didn't. But there is, and there are ways to actually go about doing that job that don't lead you into the dumps when things go sideways. And practicing the Sabbath helps us have the altitude to do it in a more, um, in a healthier posture and healthier pace. Yeah. I mean, I see you pushing into the Sabbath there. We'll we'll, we'll get there we'll in get a second. There. Yeah, we'll get yeah. there. I wanted to ask first, like this made me wonder if, um, is this something, because I know like some of your work now is in coaching creatives. Mm -hmm. And do you feel like this is a unique issue to creatives and whether that's like, however you define creative and, but people who understand mm -hmm. their work that way, where they're almost like, when you see your work in that way, you feel like you're bringing your whole self to it in yeah. ways that even like it's why the critique of the thing that you're doing as a creative can, if you're not in a healthy place, feel super personal. Yeah. I, yeah. I, th I think I would take a, like a half step back from okay. it being a thing that's unique to creatives. I think the way art and ministry, the way the arts and ministry work tend to be pitched to people, it tends to set us up for a little bit more of a, like, like a deeper or more comprehensive experience of the thing. I think everyone gets there. I think I think any person you talk to who's like at least into their forties, maybe late thirties, has looked around and realized like a lot of my relationships are like 
that are about utility and I don't have any real friends. Uh, I, a lot of folks have been through that. Okay. But being over, but over identify with one, over identifying with one's work, that's part of how the job gets pitched to us. I mean, you and I both know cats who like, they went to private school, uh, a religious school as a child. And then by the time they were 15, they knew they're supposed to be a pastor. And it's not like that's a job they wanted that was like who I'm supposed to become. Yeah. And then they spend the next 15 years working to get to that place. And they're so deeply rooted in not just like this is a job I want, but this is the person I want to be. Um, because it's pitched as an identity that's it's more problematic when it goes sideways. Same thing with the arts. It's like I am a songwriter. You're, you write songs. Or I am an author. Yeah. You write books. Uh, it tends to be more problem problematic because of the way we talk about those vocations. Yeah. Um, I, I want to be really quick to point out to folks that are listening that this isn't a book for just people who are in ministry. Like that just happens to be my experience and vantage point that I was reading totally. through. Right. Yeah. Um, it's much bigger than that. So to talk about Sabbath for a minute, here's been one of my sort of visceral reactions around um, my experience of what the Sabbath conversation has become yeah, is I feel like there has been a Sabbath legalism that has sort of resurfaced in some circles, particularly, and I feel very immersed in the spiritual formation uh, community, like that it's, formation is really important to me. Mm -hmm. And so I'm probably even more aware of it because it's very much yeah. in that community, especially around some more puritanical movements within that community. <laughs> and um my read on the Sabbath has been that there's something significant about a created order that creates intentional rhythms of rest and uh, of restoration and uh, rhythms of producing. Mm -hmm. um, but that the Sabbath was commanded during a time uh, that was an agrarian culture that mm -hmm. operated very differently. And one of the things that we'll often point out about today is that like, oh, you're hyper connected and you like, so it's harder to take breaks. My yes. counterpoint to that is often, yeah, but when Sabbath is commanded, there was not 40-hour work weeks, there was not paid vacations, there was not paid sick days, there was not, um, uh, there was not two-day weekends. Like, we actually have built into the structure of our society more space for rest and rhythm than we did before, yep. and so the concept of Sabbath still matters. But the like this 24 hour period that was needed in agrarian cultures that still needed today in the same sort of way. So I give all of that because for you, uh, my read was a 24 hour period is still really significant to you. Yes. So with all of, and, and I did not experience the kind of um, thing in your writing that I've experienced in some other people's writings around um, that. Uh, that felt like it, it almost made me feel like there's some folks in their writing that make you feel like you are living a second class life if you are not doing this. Thing, <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Uh, we're all sell we're all selling a product. Yeah. Bear of religious goods and services. There it is. <laughs> so I didn't experience that with you. So anyways, okay. I say all of that to just give a little context to like I would be curious to hear you like riff on that a little bit. Absolutely. It's, and I don't think you're wrong. I think um, specifically when you talk about, you know, building in two day weekends and what have you, uh, like this the culture works very differently. The question ends up being, do I actually take advantage of that? 
right? Do I actually do I actually take advantage of that? Or do I do the thing which I have in the past where like Saturday provides a different opportunity for different kinds of work. Uh, mm -hmm. And Sunday, especially, especially if you're a, a religious, if you're a purveyor of religious goods yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or a pastor or something like that, Sunday's a work day. Uh, Saturday's a prep day for your work day. Like, yes, it's built in, but do we take advantage of the opportunities given us, which is the heartbeat of the Sabbath, the way I understand it. I am not a theologian. I'm not, which is the thing you say right before you say something. Theologian. <laughs> um, is the heartbeat of Sabbath, I mean, you get back to that thing people point out when Jesus says the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The heartbeat of the Sabbath is it's is the way it shapes me internally and the way it shapes my life. It's a practice that's intended to posture me so that I can receive the love of God and offer the love of God through my life to other people. So just like any other it's different in it's different than the other disciplines insofar as like it is it's right there in the list of commandments before killing people like <laughs> it shows up before murder which yeah, is shocking but it's the only commandment that's not carried into the new testament as a command isn't that fascinating yeah um so insofar as it's it's different in that way it's not different in this way that the the, the intention of the practice is the shaping of your life so the question ends up being for me not like well, has culture changed? Yeah, absolutely. Culture's changed. Are you taking advantage of the opportunities? Like, what's it look like? Are you intentionalizing your rest? Or are you just assuming that because you took off an extra hour on Thursday that you got the rest you needed? Yeah. What the Sabbath does is invites us into an intentional like, attention paying to your own soul. Like, are you getting what you need from the world around you? Are you getting what you, what you need from yourself? Are you getting what you need from Christ? I'm going to venture a guess that for a lot of us who haven't intentionally asked that question, the answer is going to be no. Like, I'm not getting from God what I need. Totally get that, uh, what you think you need. Well, let's put you in a position to actually pay attention to that and intentionalize that practice. Because just because just the time is there doesn't mean I'm taking advantage of it. That's the heart of Sabbath, I would suggest, as a commandment as a, and as a practice and why it's still necessary and why the specifics are necessary. Not so that's a target you're supposed to hit. If it's not 24 hours, it doesn't count. That's not what I'm saying. But if I don't give myself parameters uh, uh, with any practice, then I don't really do the practice. So if I'm going to practice, let, let's say I'm going I'm to do something like centering prayer, like I'm going to call it, I'm going to try two minutes, right? And if I and if I don't hit two minutes, like that's okay. But I'm actually practicing if I try to hit two minutes and then try to extend that to five and then try to extend that to twenty. Right. So I have to have like a way that I'm going about trying to practice this. So that's why like the particulars of 24 hours, like that kind of thing matters. It makes it an actual practice that I can attempt with some hmm. framework. No, I appreciate that. And I appreciate like the idea of um, the forced intentionality around it. Yeah. Um, matters a lot because I totally get and have experienced exactly what you're saying that days off are not necessarily restorative if there's not an intentionality around around that. And, and uh, there's something that you wrote that was really helpful for me around that. You distinguish between um, oh, rest of like obligation versus joy. Yeah. Rest. Yeah. Um, and kind of making a list of like, 
yeah. what brings, what, what am I doing? Cause I'm obligated to do. And what am I doing? Yeah. Uh, that's bringing joy. Like that was a helpful framework for me, I think. In thinking yeah. And that's, that. a, and that's a self-learning piece where like, you know, you and I are, are, are you know both well into our 40s and we know like we like it, the, you're the, more well it, into your 40s than i'm I way am. i'm way well into my 40s <laughs> uh i'm almost 50 son so uh but like learning myself like to have the humility as a person particularly as a person of faith to pause regularly in my life to evaluate again am i getting what i am i getting what i need with regards to like rest and care and so one of the questions ends up being like you know, in terms of in terms of rest, um, do I know what actually makes me feel rested, or am I just is it enough for me to just get away from work? Because that's okay. I totally understand that impulse. I just need to get away from work. That's fine. But rest as a practice has to be, I would suggest, much deeper than just divorcing yourself from things that cost you your time. Are you in touch with your own joy? Are you in touch with your like what makes you feel loved and fully alive? That's actually a practice of rest. I tell the story in the book about. Like there are ways to rest poorly. And the anecdote is that I, 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 I was flying to Germany and I, I, I had done international travel before. And I know like there's that whole, almost whole day once you get on the other side and like time equilibrium, you're all jacked up. And I was going to fix that problem by being really well rested by the time I got to Germany. So I stayed up the whole night before, got an airplane, slept for 11 hours against the window on a Lufthansa flight, got off the plane in Germany and picked up my bag and threw my back out because I had slept all like super crooked. And then for like the first three days I was there, I couldn't stand up straight. I couldn't get out of a chair. I had to go see a chiropractor in Germany, which is a terrifying proposition. Um, but there are ways that we rest that actually long-term malform us. It happens all the time. Like folks who will like bounce they count on their one that, that that you know that one ten to ten day to two week vacation like that's going to get me there. Yep. And what happens? We go on that ten day or two week vacation, and we come home, and first and foremost, like it's probably not long enough to actually get us into like to actually detox us from our bad patterns. We just barely get in touch with like oh, there's a deep breath, oh, there's some joy, and then we have to go home. And then home is a place we resent, and our workplace is a place we resent even more so. So now I have more a re like more resentment towards my regular life, and where life is for me is on a beach in Tahiti, and I've malformed my own soul to have like all this, like anim, uh, to have uh, yeah, uh, anim, what's what's the word I'm looking for? To have animosity towards the actual life I'm living. Whereas a real practice of rest, true rest brings me to an appreciation for and a love for my life as it is, as opposed to does that. So there are ways that we can rest that actually malforms our life. I love that. And that idea that like it, um, good rest, true rest causes you to love the life that you have rather than. Amen. That's, uh, that was, that's such a helpful framework. And, um, even like that experience of uh, vacation, I was thinking about. I, I do some sabbatical coaching with pastors, yeah, and they'll get this gift—a beautiful, wonderful gift that I wish everyone could have—of you know, a three, sometimes four month, sometimes even a little bit longer period of rest from work. And um, the the majority of pastors I know that head into that head into that almost like limping. I need this sabbatical. 
and yeah. they come out of it and they're and it's often like oh that wasn't long enough i needed more because they were heading into it yes with it like with the it was with a vacation kind of mindset like and yeah. this is going to be the thing that's going to fix i've been burning out i've been um doing really unhealthy rhythms and practices in my life yeah. i'm probably not centered and grounded and working yep. out of my belovedness and i'm going to take three months and that's going to fix it and it doesn't fix it yep well and you can hear both things happening in there right one is you don't clearly you didn't know you didn't know how to rest and so you when you, it's it's like you're the guy who shows up at the gym after not being in the gym for two years hmm. and you're just freaking throwing weights around and then you come out of the gym and you're there for six hours to make up for all the time you haven't been going to the gym you're like i'm in pain i think i'm bleeding on my nose and in my eyes i don't know what happened you're like <laughs> you're bad at that because you don't practice it and yeah, this, yeah. you know you'll know as a coach part of the part of what makes i'm going to come close to using the word i'll say the word necessary here and, and I, but i don't mean it uh, in the legalistic sense but part of what makes a, a a practice of rest a sabbath keeping necessary is that when those specifically as a pastor is that when those opportunities are actually granted us i'm familiar first and foremost with what rest feels like I know what it feels like so that by the time I'm heading into a, a three month, four month, gracious, that sounds fantastic, um, sabbatical, I know what I want to go get. And once I go there, I know, again, like just like going to the gym, like I'm just not going to go over and deadlift because that's bad for my body. But I am going to spend time on the treadmill and this, like, you know what it is you want. The other thing it does is, and you can hear the this is the second part of the framework, is if work, if your work is a thing you have to just get away from, and that's if that's enough, like first and foremost, your rest is now totally like everything in your life is now predicated. Like your work is like the monolith. It's not your well being. Your work is the monolith, and it's dictating what you mean by rest. In huh. both, like if you don't love your work, let's let's fix that first before we just say like, well, periodically you just got to get away from this awful thing that you have to do. And just get yourself well so you can go back to it. Let's fix this thing, this problem you have with your relationship with work. Can you feel fully beloved as you're doing your work? Let's actually get that work done instead of just get you away from this big monster as if work's a bad thing you have to do. Yeah, that's so good. That's so good. Um, I was thinking when you are talking earlier about like us both kind of getting into our 40s and you just start to learn different things. One of the things that I've realized in paying attention to what's restorative and rest for me is that there's all these like little almost contextual things that matter for me within something. Mm -hmm. So like a friend and I were talking recently that like watching a movie is restorative, but not just watching a movie. Like I've learned, Oh, it's actually really helpful if I'm, cause now I can watch a movie and I can pause it and I can go do something and come back or I can have my phone on me and whatever. Right. Cause I can watch the, a brand new movie in my living room. It's actually like watching a movie without interruption. And it's actually even more restorative to me when the room can be dark. And that there's like all these like little contextual clues that I've started to learn to pay attention to that it's like, yes. you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I'd have said watching a movie is restorative. But, I, but I've learned like, eh, it's actually not. It's mm -hmm. like the whole context around it makes a difference. Yes. Yeah. And that's such a great, I mean, it's a thing you do and you do and then pay attention and then once you pay attention, you can do the thing more deeply, like yeah. the, the practice. 
of like pausing, which is again, one of the gifts of uh, like, like a thing like the examine as a prayer mm-hmm. or the Sabbath as a regular pattern is ha- giving yourself moments to stop and pay attention to the life you're actually living. First and foremost, to like appreciate the remarkable gift it is to be alive at all. But secondly, to pay attention to moments like that and, and know like this is, this is actually what's up as opposed to like, I just like movies. No, it's it, there's more going on there, and if you give yourself time, you can look at that and be like, "It's actually this that I like about movies." Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, all right, can we? I, I had written down this note, and I don't have context to it, but maybe it'll make sense as we start talking. I wrote, Let's try. Talk, "Talk to Justin about retirement." <laughs> <laughs> so here's that's a great question. Um, and like, let me let me set up a little context for folks here to say that you and I were supposed to record this a few weeks ago. We are having crazy storms in California yes. and my power got knocked out. So you graciously have rescheduled. So I wrote this down a few weeks ago, knowing full well, oh, this is what he was talking about that made me think of this. But so let, let me give my like little two minute kind of like uh, yeah, go retirement rant. That's like my Sabbath rant. And I'm in. I'm so in. I think that there is this bill of goods that um, we are being sold of this movement towards like you're trying to move towards this golden era where someday you can get to the point where you can do all the things that you want. And Mm -hmm. so you're doing you're doing this work that you put up with in order to get to this point when finally your life can be freed up to do all these things you want. And um, it bothered me for a while, that sort of like mentality. And I started like uh, through my church and through people I had relationships with, I was hanging out with people that were entering into retirement and the kind of like focus they would have around like, I've got two and a half more years. And it was like, I was like, gosh, it just sounded so sad to me and so uninspiring. And, um, and like what, like, so now I get to golf all the time or whatever, Um, So I had sort of that piece. Then I had experiences with folks that were like essentially saving up experiences for when they could get to that point who were not able to do those experiences Mm -hmm. because of health things that happened there because of and um, and so it felt like they're missing that. So we had taken an approach, my wife and I, that we had not really talked to people about because we felt like this is against all the um, money advice that you get and whatever, where we essentially said, we really value experiences with our family right now. And so we are going to forego uh, some of the way that we would save for retirement with the the thinking that like we will figure out, like we'll probably end up working longer as a result of that. But we will forego that in order to be able to do things as a family now that we might not be able to do then. And we would rather like, but that doesn't make sense in sort of like American ethos. Um, so there's something like in the way that you're talking in your book about stuff that like sort of keyed that thing in me. Um, and I, yeah, I just kind of was curious to, yep. I don't know, to bounce that off of somebody who it seemed like maybe would have some room for that kind of thinking. I, I resonate a hundred percent. And, and, uh, what you, what you, I would say if we were in a coaching session, let's say, I would say to you, let's say that we were coaching that, uh, you are paying attention to a good desire 
uh, just like everyone is paying attention, the, the folks who are like, at some point, I'm going to get to do all these things that I really like doing. But for the time being, I've just got to bust my ass and get through this thing so that I can get to where I want. That desire is the desire to live fully. That's ex that's what we're feeling. It's what you're in. Like, that's a good desire. The retirement plan is just a lesser plan. It's a lesser plan because it doesn't give enough. It First and foremost, it doesn't give enough um, credence and credit to the desire of your soul that's speaking to you right now. Because what your soul is saying is, hey, um, there's more to life than what we're doing right now. Uh, and your plan and, and then our, our response is like, totally, we'll get to that later. Hmm. And I think instead it's a soul saying, no, this is the shape that I, I, I'd rather – I, I, I would exist more freely if, if our life was shaped this way. And so like the shape we give the whole life is you work and then you have retirement and then you die. Like that's the shape. You have this work life, you bust your butt, you jump through all the hoops and then you have this little space at the end of retirement and happiness and peace and then you die. Like that's the shape. And you're talking about a completely different shape of like this, we're going to do this now we're going to take this time now and it's not going to be this work and that it's going to be where there's time to work and then there's seasons to rest and get away and we're going to spend some of the money now and it's and it becomes this again this more organic kind of uh patterned shape as opposed to the block of time where you just spend yourself and then die so it's the same desire it's just a really bad plan retirement oftentimes is a bad plan because again, it malforms our, our expectations for what rest is, and we're not ready for it when we get there. Uh, and it makes work the enemy. Yes, work is this thing. It's one. Of, it's one of my favorite aspects of having written the book is that I, what I hope folks do is walk away from the book with an appreciation for work and appreciate. Like I, again, I'm not a theologian, but we really do lack a sufficient or, or um, broad enough theology of work. Like we don't appreciate work as a gift and as an expression of who we are and, and a, an expression of belovedness. It's one of the things I get to, when I initially started writing the book, I was like, I'm gonna do a book on rest, uh, on rest and Sabbath keeping. And then no joke, like the more I wrote, the more I came around to these stories about like, oh my gosh, that time in Mexico, that trip to Germany and like, or like tour life and like how much I loved work and really recognizing like, ah, I need I need to tell stories about how much I love what I do and why it is I get to continue to love what I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the retirement plan makes work the bad guy, and that's that's part of what's awful about it. Yes. Well, and yeah, it does, and it's actually really hard to live in this other way within a um, cultural current that pushes against that. That mm -hmm. like you're connecting with a financial advisor and you're trying to explain to them like your thoughts about retirement and they have no category for it. And they just keep defaulting back into like, well, what age do you want to retire and what kind of lifestyle do you want to have then? And I was like, well, that's not the conversation I want to have. Like, no, I want to live. I want to live now. And, and it feels yeah. if I talk to a part of why we don't talk to people about it is because it feels like we're saying something that's reckless and yes. that it's like in the same way of saying like, well, what if at 70, if I'm saying, what if at 70, I can't do those things or I can't do them with my family, yeah. then you're also saying, well, what if at 70 I can't work and I can't make enough and then I become a drain on my kids having to take care of me or whatever yeah. that 
we don't have the finances set aside to do whatever needs and those, to be. And those, are, and those are warnings that are worth paying attention to, right? Yeah, like, I think so. I, I totally get that. There are other warning signs that are also worth paying attention to, like the depression rate among children uh, would be one of those things. And some of that is because their families are living in patterns in which they're constantly isolated. They don't get the kind of time with mom or with dad or the depression rate among like young adults or even adults. Like that's a thing to pay attention to. We're not living as a whole. I don't make broad cultural statements a whole lot, but I will do this one. As a whole, we're not living patterns that actually invite and celebrate actual whole in human health. We make plans for the long term in which like at some point I'll get to be happy. And it, it, like it's, it's, it's like a, it's, I've got that song, um, Oh my gosh. Uh, what's that song from the sixties jam about the kid who's trying to get time with his dad and his dad keeps telling him we'll do it tomorrow. Captain Cradle. Yeah. Captain, Captain Cradle. The like, like make every dad feel terrible song. Yeah. It, and there is something to that though. I mean, like I, yeah. like I, like I, I get that. Like, you know, I talk about my dad in the book uh, and I talk about losing my dad to depression and suicide. That was, that was predicated on this very narrative that, you work for a while and his, his dominant value was, was his, abil his, his ability to provide, right? He's not entirely wrong about that, but in terms of provision, I would have loved for him to be able to provide his presence to my children. And he doesn't get to do that because he spent himself doing what he was doing before. So this, the, the narratives we live in specifically around, around work and what it's supposed to do we're hurting ourselves regularly and the signs are popping up left and right. We have to change the plan. And I like your plan of saying like, I, I think we're going to take this shape and actually just, and, and move it in closer to where we are now. We're going to get, we're going to have those experiences now while we know we want them. And while, while we know we can actually get them. I think that's highly responsible. Hmm. I appreciate that. That's what I'm going to tell everybody from now on. Amen. And tell me I'm irresponsible. Justin, <laughs> Justin said I'm being highly responsible, oh, actually. <laughs> um, bro, this is so good. I think I could talk to you about this stuff for a long time. What um, what have I not asked you that you wish we would talk about here? That I want to make sure that we haven't missed something. Um, well, you know, you and I could talk about that would be be cool. You know, we, you and I have uh, have talked uh, interpersonally about to go back to the, the pastoral aspect of things. It's a place where you and I have a lot of resonance. Um, the, the impermanence of the job uh, and the impermanence of the thing. Um, one of the pieces I get to in the book, and I'd love to hear you reflect on this a little bit, is I, I get to the book, get to in the book that, that I thought when I was building my church community that I was gonna build something that lasted. And it was an assumption I made it wasn't the thing I thought thought. And then when it didn't last, uh, it was awful. Mm. And there and it wasn't just, and again, this is stuff you and I've talked about. It wasn't just like it wasn't just the, the interpersonal stuff, which was bad <laughs> as it was to be, you know, accused of things or blamed for things in terms of how the institution fell apart. But it was underneath all of it, like I thought because of the nature of the thing, I built something that was going to last and then it didn't last. And that, that really messed with my head. And one of the, one of the, one of the pieces that 
um, one of the places where I've been able to unpack that and find some healing and relief is again, in the practice of rest, recognizing, um, the impermanence of everything I make, hmm. recognizing and celebrating my limitations, um, and recognizing and celebrating the limitations of any and every cultural artifact I'll ever put together. The part of the glory and the value of the thing is its limitation and that the limitations we put just like on this, like the limitations we have in ourselves, the limitations that are innate to our institutions are actually part of their glory and they're not part of the problem. It's not problematic that your church yes, won't last. Yes, yes. It's actually beautiful and necessary that your church won't last. And if you think you're building something that lasts, one, you're going to miss the glory of what it is. And two, you're not going to appreciate it while you're in it. And then three, when it's done, you're going to think you blew it and you didn't. You made something for the moment. And that was awesome. And now it's yeah. gone. So let's build something else. Yes. Oh, my gosh. I have so many thoughts. I mean, one of them is you talk about this some in your book of the um, uh, challenging what we mean by growth. And, yeah. um And I think that we in in the church, we have adopted this mentality of things need to always be up and to the right. And we take something that is an organic experience that the dominant metaphors for the church in the New Testament are all organic kind of metaphors. And we try to turn it into an inorganic kind of experience that yeah. um, because nothing organic is always up and to the right. And um, we have definitions of growth that are entirely based around an economic uh, engine mindset mm -hmm. uh, that like the way that we think about uh, growth of uh, numbers of people, all that is all based around the framework of it is an economic growth mindset that yep. undergirds all of that. And um, not like when New Testament is talking about growth uh, in believers is talking about yeah. fruits of the spirit, right? Mm -hmm. Like. Are you more loving, joyful, peaceful, patient? So like, um, so I think like there's, there's this undergirding structure, right? That we yes. have unconsciously bought into that feeds some of that. I think that there's definitely that piece. Yeah. The, I, the second time I said, you know, Sabbath resistance, we talked this whole section about Sabbath resistance, isn't so much a blanket critique of organized, organizational institutional growth as it is a call to evaluate what we even mean by growth. It's a call to consider uh, that if we think of growth, uh, if what we think of as growth comes at the cost of well-being, that growth is likely cancerous and should be treated as such. So if, if what we mean by growth is costing us and other people their health or well, their well-being, like we're wrong, period, yes. about what we mean by growth. If your, if your definition of growth does not include the, the health and the well-being of, of yourself, the people you're working with and you're working with for right now, you're wrong, period. Oh, yeah. And how many systems of our churches are like have this constant turnover of volunteers because we have created systems? I mean, I remember we were doing um, Christmas Eve services when I first became senior pastor over um, multiple days. And I don't remember. We were doing like seven or eight of them just like a ridiculous number. And maybe it was my second year as senior pastor. I heard a story about one of our musicians who was in between their music sets 
like when I was preaching stuff, would go into their car and wrap Christmas presents because they had been at, they had rehearsals multiple nights in the weeks leading up to this. Then they were at church for almost all day on December 23rd, all day December 24th. And so they were having to cram in um, the, like, like, Christmas present wrapping for their kids in like Dang. the holes around their volunteering at the church. And I was like, this is ridiculous. Mm. And we actually changed then our, we, we needed to do, I need is the wrong word. We chose to do still a number of services because of the number of people we, we had wanted to accommodate, yeah. but we then changed how we did it where we always did our Christmas Eve service started on the Sunday before. So it wasn't like, I think that particular year we had had like Sunday was like the 21st or 22nd. So we had a regular Sunday service that we did all of our, and we were doing Saturday services. That, so we had four services that weekend. Then two days later, we've got another eight, right? And we're just ripping through people. So we said that Sunday before is going to be Christmas services. And mm-hmm. then we'll do some on the 24th also, no matter how, it might be like the 19th and the 24th, they'll be super far apart, but we're at least going yeah. to like, create a healthier rhythm there. Yeah. And I, I got the first year we did it, we did nothing on the 24th. And, um, I think that would have burnt the church down if I kept doing that. Um, (laughs) which maybe would have been the good and right thing to do. I don't know, but, (laughs) but anyway, like there was just so much resistance to that, that yeah, it's so hard to figure out ways that like, um, to value the health and wholeness of the people who are engaged in, serving and caring for the church um, around yeah. the, to value that above the production of the church and production, not just of a Sunday service, but of all of what the church does. And I think you point out a thing that, and I think you'll resonate with me on this when it comes to, when it comes to the long-term future, and I mean long-term of church and the practice of church in our context here in the States, um, that moment in which you like you engage in what Harry Nowen calls the ministry of disappointment hmm. um, is so vital that if you want to be a pastor, like, I'm just going to preach for a second. Like if you want to be a pastor in the long term, you got to learn to disappoint people. Uh, and not because you're like not disappoint people because like, wow, I thought he was a nice guy and he super isn't. That's not what I mean. What I mean is like if what we're doing is spiritual formation, then you will you will culturally incur the kind of like resistance and pushback in a whole group of people that you feel in yourself when you're trying to get from five minutes of silent sitting to 20 minutes of silent sitting and because your psychology is screaming at you, this is ridiculous and you're getting pushback. But you've committed to this because you trust in the long-term formation of your own soul. So moments like that, when we say no to cultural expectations with which people come to church, that's part of what's gonna make us healthy long-term. Hmm. That's part of what's going to make us healthy long-term is we're going to say, I can do this much and I can't do more than that. In fact, bigger than that, I won't do more than that because I want to still be here 20 years from now. Um, and if you want to be framed, if you want to be shaped the way I'm, I'm shaped, if you, this, if you want to follow me, then this is, this is what it looks like. And if you don't, that's totally fine you're going to have to go somewhere else. And I've got a list of names of other people who are doing this, but like the capacity to say no to the cultural pressures, even to the demands of the people we're leading, uh, that's going to be part of what it looks like to actually be healthy, 
healthy pastures long-term. And we have to practice that, which leads me back to that thing that Mark Buchanan said at the very beginning, which is like, if you want to do what you love and love what you do long-term, you have to learn to not do it. And if, if being a pastor yeah. means being available to a group of people, yeah. which you are, and being a shepherd to people, you want to do that long-term, you've got to have times when you are not available to people and you are not their shepherd. Um, Stanley Hauerwas said that pastors turn themselves into quivering masses of availability. And, yeah, bro. Quivering so masses many. of availability. Yeah. That you just sort of like bend to people's needs and wants and just sort of give in to that and just make yourself available to any and all and like there's a gift in um, limits like you're talking about in receiving 100%. that and recognizing that and trusting in the goodness of God to fill in um, that space. Well, and trusting in the goodness of God in you as you are, because, yeah. you know, another bit of the book, like you're the you're the gift you're giving to the to your people. That's it. You're the gift you're giving. And if you can give a healthier version of yourself. Please, please do that. Because the, the folks who are the quivering, quivering masses of availability, let's be honest between you and I, like those are the good ones. The, those are the good ones yeah. among us who are like, they're so available because they so deeply love the Lord and they love these people. And so they're constant. Those are the good ones. The other ones who aren't so good have whole other sets of issues. So that desire in you to be that kind of available to people, that is a really, really good desire. Let's let's get you in a place in which you can do that well and fully and being fully available doesn't mean being, being available all the time. It means being unavailable enough that you are in touch with yourself and with God so that when you're giving yourself to people, you are fully available. So good. That's good. That's, uh, gosh, I could, I think we could talk about this for a long time. Um, but that's a good one for us to close out on. Like, tell tell the people where they can find you, find all the stuff that you're putting out. Sure. Pay attention to you. Uh, with the book specifically, if you go to sacredstrides.com, apparently we own that, which is great. Uh, that's a launching point. I didn't know. Uh, I just saw it. I was like, that's my website. Um, if you go to sacredstrides.com, that's a place where you can launch off and like find the book wherever you want to find books. But I am available just by my name, Justin McRoberts, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, or at justinmcroberts.com. Awesome. Sacredstrides.com. I'll throw that up in the show notes. And Thanks, man. Um, bro, it's so good to have you here. I'm really grateful Absolutely. we got a chance to connect on this. And I'm really grateful for what you're putting out in the world. That Genuinely, the book is a gift. And I hope it's that really helpful a for a lot of people. Dude, thank you. Sister. I mean that. Thanks for pushing through and making it happen.